Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode nine. It's quite a special week. There was a confluence of timing in my interview with Gabor Mate last week and the release of his film, The Wisdom of Trauma, which, when I reached out to him, wasn't on my radar. But if you haven't seen this film, which just came out, it's well worth watching. I sat on the couch with my wife last night, and we held each other as we watched this incredibly touching and important movie that chronicles the life and the work of Gabor Mate. There are many scenes in the film with inmates. There's a very powerful through line as these inmates are asked to step forward every time that they recognize within themselves some measure of adverse child experience. The Adverse Child Experience Study, or ACES, was a large-scale longitudinal study that was done in California, and it looked at the correlation between early adverse experiences in children, such as physical or emotional abuse, poverty, isolation, and hardships and challenges later in life. It's irrefutable, and it was done with thousands of people. The compassion in some of the scenes in this film are overwhelming, especially when you have men, and in this case it was men, talking about having committed murder and opening up about the horrors that they experienced as children. I wanted to take today's podcast and zero in on what I believe to be at the heart of a paradigmatic shift that has taken place not only in psychology, but in the ways that we view ourselves and our actions in society in general. I attempted to ask Gabor Mate a question that focused on the ways that our inner lives are now on display. There have been so many recent examples of men and women losing their jobs because of the violent and aggressive ways that they treat their employees, their colleagues, and in many parts of the world, 
these ways of working and dealing with our emotions have simply become unacceptable. And this, of course, is a hugely positive shift. The more that people do not have to go to work and suffer sexual violence, harassment, bullying, this is obviously better for everybody. It also represents a significant development in our sensitivity towards our emotional lives and those of others. One example that I often think about in my mind is the woman that ends up at the hospital, perhaps realizing that she is miscarrying and receiving medical treatment. And recently, on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, in an interview, I believe it was on White Coat Black Art, a show that goes behind the gurney and talks to people's experience in the emergency room. There was a discussion on the kinds of psychological and emotional support that people, especially women, might need in these circumstances. And it dawned on me that if we went back 10, 20 years, I'm not so sure that those kinds of considerations would have been as front of mind as they are now in the ways that alarm bells are being rung to make sure that we are covering off that aspect of our experience. And of course, we see this across all levels of society, whether it's corporations that are developing mental health policies for their employees, schools that are putting into place zero tolerance for bullying, parents taking parenting workshops and learning how to deal with their emotions, going to therapy. I always think about the old idea of the farm where you have 10 kids, mostly so that you have more help around the farm. And can you imagine the farmer before going to bed and knowing he has to wake up at four or five in the morning to milk the cows or go out into the fields, grabbing a book on parenting to make sure that he doesn't wake up his kids too early so they don't suffer trauma in their lives? I mean, in this sense, we're living in a completely different age. And I wanted to talk about this today because if there's one thing that is clear, and this is true even when we think about the kinds of help that we can now get, historically, especially when psychotherapy first came into being, it was more harsh, it was more masculine. Even when we talk about somebody being defensive, stop being defensive, <laughs> you can already hear in that the pejorative nature of the comment. What I mean to say is that what Mate points out in the film, The Wisdom of Trauma, and frankly, the way that theory has developed in psychotherapy has kept in line with the other changes in society that I am referring to, which have led to a more benevolent, 
understanding of suffering, more of a focus on the automatic nature of our defenses, and I think an awakening that nothing will come from further punishing the human being for the ways that they have had to learn to survive. I read a comment, I believe on Facebook this morning, and the gist of it was basically, look, don't even dare make a comment about someone's body, whether you think they're too skinny or overweight. You have no idea about the complexity of what that person is facing. And to be honest with you, it brought me to tears. Because as a man, and a larger man, it really touched me how much actually goes in to not only trying to stave off gaining weight, but the shame that even I carry at having been a bigger person most of my life, having come from a line of people that struggle with weight, and frankly, a connection to the ways that the weight has protected me from my own pain in my life, and I think from the pain of my ancestors. And I have noticed a shift. My son is skinny as a rake. <laughs> and I'll go out on a limb and suggest that in many ways, I believe that is the case because of all the grieving that I had to do in this work. So it was very touching to read that, and it further reminded me to pull back and really be considerate of the complexities of what each of us goes through to get up in the morning, to make it through the day, and to make some attempt to be as conscious as possible. This comes back to this idea that each of us, when we are young, develops quite unconsciously a paradigm to face the world. There's an author who I would love to interview one day, Donald Kalshed, an American psychologist who wrote a couple of important books. One is called The Inner World of Trauma. His second book is called Trauma and the Soul. And he really runs with the idea that if we are hurt too early, if we are affected by unbearable, overwhelming loss, harsh punishment, unsafe and hostile environments, that the innocent part of us that comes into the world ready to be loved, also ready to be disappointed, but disappointed in a way that a child can understand and be held around, 
that this innocent part of us, if it is faced with harsh treatment or a harsh reality too early, needs to be protected by vehement, powerful, archetypal forces. And the loss there is that that innocent part of us never really learns what it is like to be let down in a good enough way. This touches on another very important concept by the founder of self-psychology, Heinz Kohut, who founded a notion called optimal frustration, which suggests that life is not the absence of disappointment. It's learning how to live with disappointment, which again touches on Yak Pangsep's notion that we have to learn how to be depressed, that life events, transitions, losses of work, retirement, children leaving home, all of these events in our lives involve pain and loss and helplessness. And so when Gabor Mate last week talked about treating children well, that that is the critical element in healthy psychological development. And he distilled all of the pathologies that we see coming back to complex developmental trauma. What I believe that he is essentially saying is that we need containers to help usher us into the world and not to be punished when we are sad, alone, and vulnerable. Not to expect harsh treatment, criticism, bitterness, loneliness, when we are alone. I remember holding my son when he was little, even when he was mad at me. And thankfully, I had heard a lecture many years ago by an Indian-American psychiatrist who, in this very beautiful and humorous way, came out and said, look, when your child is angry with you, they're not angry with you. They're not angry with you, the subjective individual. When they say, I hate you, mommy, daddy, you're so mean, you're the meanest person in the world. And of course, this just gets more sophisticated as children get older, become teenagers, they know how to push your buttons. What the psychiatrist was saying is they do not know who you are. They do not know the intricacies of your education, your upbringing. And then he goes on to say in humorous fashion, they don't know how you like to have sex. They're not angry with you. They're angry with the idea of you, with capital M, mummy, capital D, dad. They're angry with the concept of the parent of being let down. And that is such a crucial moment 
to recognize the difference. Because if in ourselves we can recognize that our children are disappointed with life, with maybe not getting what they want, having a bad day, and if we can hold that and see that and hold their disappointment and hold them in their disappointment without reacting, I think we are giving a gift. And I remember doing that, doing my best to hold fast, not being reactive. I'm sure I've made many mistakes along the way. But I'll come out and say that in that moment when those tensions were present, my son's anger with me, disappointment with me, but a part of me that could tell the difference that it had nothing to do with me per se. I remember being touched very deeply. And I don't remember that feeling in myself. That is what Gabor is talking about. It's not a simple idea as in just treat people well, because it it actually takes a lot of work. And so the shift that we've experienced is a kind of fundamental compassion towards these ways that we have had to insulate ourselves from pain, and they reach extremes. Mate describes politicians. He talked about Trump and Clinton, and the list goes on. Never mind the murderous activities of Vladimir Putin. I raised the recent issue in Belarus. I know somebody in Belarus who was fired from their job for giving a tour of the museum to some people who were involved in recent protests for democracy in that country. Gone. Her job gone overnight. The ways that our pain translate into aggressive, binary, dictatorial behavior, both on these broad, horrific political levels, right down to, and this is really the point of today, right down to the ways that we treat ourselves. If you watch the film, if you've seen Gabor Mate work, you will see him slowly and carefully scrutinize the attitudes and views that people have towards their own upbringing, their own thoughts, their own experience. And this is a shift. A shift away from treating what we see in ourselves as disgusting, as our greatest faults, our shame. Gabor will have interviewed the great musician and singer Sia by the time this comes out. And I was tickled when I heard this. And I can't wait to listen in. Because if you listen to Sia's music, she goes right to the heart of how debilitating shame is and the kind of light and courage that we need towards ourselves to pull ourselves out of how annihilating 
this can be. I was able to watch the interview with Sia before the release of this podcast, and boy, it didn't disappoint. What an incredible conversation to witness. At one point, Gabor lists all of the ways that Sia's life fulfills the desires of so many. Fame, money, creativity, the most videos in the Billion Views Club on YouTube of any female artist alive. And yet, there she is, talking about how debilitating the early emotional neglect she felt as a child remains in her life. She also opened up and acknowledged that covering her face with a wig in performances was in large part to hide her quote-unquote ugliness from the world. Wow. The power of these conversations is not necessarily what they promise for the future. I wish for humanity's sake that there is some major revelation that alleviates us of these incredible challenges to our emotional and psychological well-being. No. For me, the power of that interview was the interview itself. The butterflies, watching someone I admire bear their soul. The hope it gives me to see people connect. And the grace I felt seeing Mate talking to Sia from exactly the same place I had spoken to him the week before. I trust that if this podcast has any meaning for you, it is in the present tense that you are with me. As my producer Danny Osmond is wont to say, podcasts are like intimate conversations, up close and personal, right in your ear. And I hope that when I am that close, that I am also touching your hearts, because when I get your feedback and encouragement, you are certainly touching mine. I want to take a brief moment to let you know that next week, I'll be interviewing my good, dear friend and founding choreographer of Cirque du Soleil, Deborah Brown. We will be making a special announcement about an opportunity to join us in person at our inaugural summit. You will not want to miss my conversation with one of the world's most renowned and inspired choreographers, who has had her work performed from Tokyo to Monaco, to Las Vegas, and back. We will be creating a special opportunity for us to heal together this October after a long and sometimes difficult couple of years. Please continue to share your feedback and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast if you have not done so already. You can pre-order your Intimacy Problem Workbook at my site, mitchellsmolkin.com, or head on over to theintimacyproblem.com to sign up for your free ebook. Your support means the world to me. Now, back to the show. Something has shifted in my work. And Gabor commented on this in the interview when I reflected to him that someone the day that I was speaking to Gabor had told me with bright eyes and the smile on his face that through our communication, through our work, something in him shifted to realize that it was okay to be in pain. Another woman a few weeks ago said the same thing, and she looked at me and she said, you know, no one has ever 
told me that I was okay. And I don't mean to suggest that this is some kind of facile or direct communication, as in you're okay. It's an attempt to slow down the vicious ways that we turn on ourselves when we come to know our grief and we come to see the ways that our grief has translated in our lives to actions, sometimes actions that have gotten in the way of the things that we want, have hurt our relationships, have maybe hurt our children. It's overwhelming. So many people, when they start psychotherapy or come to midlife, and this is very important because the whole notion of the midlife crisis seems a bit quaint these days, given how early people start to reflect on themselves through social media or otherwise. But I think the idea archetypally is still very present in the life cycle in the sense that it is around middle age. Carl Jung, in a footnote in the Red Book, says that at around the age of 35, we start to confront our mortality. That when these early ways that we try to confront life start to show cracks, we get tired of ourselves. If we have not had the grace to have spaces with others that love us to reflect on why we got to where we are, it is overwhelming. It might be the first time that people even feel anxiety. This is something I hear a lot in my practice, especially lately. I was never an anxious person. It was better before when I didn't cry. You know, when you walk by a dam and you see that maybe the dam is protecting a city from flooding, maybe the dam took years and thousands of hours of labor to create, I don't know that somebody walks by the dam and curses it <laughs> or wonders why it's there. It's obvious why it's there. Because if it wasn't there, a city, a town might flood, people might die. So why then, when we realize that in our lives we had to build dams so strong to hold back our pain so we do not go insane, so we do not walk around in the first half of our lives flooded with horrific emotion? Why is it that when all of a sudden the dam starts to crack and we see signs of ourselves, do we so often turn, look back and say, what the hell was I doing? <laughs> this is now what I mean when I talk to people about their superpowers. And I feel a little funny when I say it. It sounds almost trite, but I love the idea. Why not? Why not think about all the ways that we came into the world, all of the dams that we had to build around parts of us that simply couldn't come into the light when we were younger for whatever reason. Why not 
value and honor all the labor that went into building a psychic skin, a way to meet other people. And yes, sometimes we realize that that psychic skin was thick and impenetrable, and maybe it kept others out, maybe it kept us from ourselves. But God, can you imagine life having not found some way to build a dam around those emotions? How would one get through school, maybe get a job, maybe leave home, have some container? And some people's containers have to be stronger than others. And yet I struggle with it when I see it in myself or with friends and you can feel that there's something between you or things go wrong. Ugh, I hate that feeling. You just know it. You know when someone's either shutting down or some wound has been touched and there's just this automatic recollection of the pain and we all act out in those moments. But then begins the process of learning about it. That's the work. And I think if I'm understanding anything at all about the shift that's taking place, it's that it has to begin from a place of compassion. That's the name that Gabor Mate gave to his methodology, Compassionate Inquiry. And watching him work live and also in the film resonated very deeply with me. It's not just about patting ourselves on the back. But there has to be at the beginning, at the very minimum, a compassionate scrutiny of what makes us who we are. And I feel that that so often, in even the ways that we look at psychology, whether it's anxiety or depression, even though there is so much effort to bring these conversations into the open, I still feel like it's a little bit askew in the sense that it's a dirty word. I even have trouble when we talk about quote-unquote, bad mental health. My worry is that the subtlety of these fluctuations in the ways that we try to cope with the human experience in our attempts to make them normal, we're just perpetuating the idea that it's abnormal, different than, strange, wrong. I don't know the answer because I certainly don't want to get in the way of all of this momentum to normalize our experience. But I feel like it has something to do with just acknowledging that this is a shared reality. And maybe that's already there and I'm just missing the point. But I intuitively feel like something is missing and what I'm advocating for, and again, this goes back to the name of this podcast, is a fundamental notion of the dignity of suffering as a universal idea. When I say it out loud, of course, it's not a new idea. I think most religions are born out of an attempt to make sense of provide structure for, to collect stories around our experience. 
And I started out my career in psychology studying the work of Carl Jung. And many of you who listen to this know his work, many of you don't. But my particular read on that man and what he was standing on the edge of was trying to mediate a time when religion held much of our discontent. Sean Smith and I discussed this with the death of God and the work of Nietzsche and others and being laid bare to face our anxiety in a somewhat more brutal way, but in a way where we have to understand it with perhaps a different kind of sobriety. And I don't like when it gets cheapened, the language cheapens our experience, and something like anxiety becomes a dirty word that we try and resist. It makes sense that we get anxious. It makes sense that our partners bring up huge feelings in us. It makes sense that we get nervous before exams or meeting new people. We don't want to push that away. And I concur with Mate's view on medication that it would be actually intellectually irresponsible to demonize it if you actually look back at the history of psychiatry, because we have come a long way, and there is something very compassionate about having more tools in our toolbox to help people survive, get out of bed in the morning. And I have seen it. I worked with patients with diagnoses of schizophrenia, variations of psychosis, and it was very compassionate that we have medicines that can help people have a good enough life and that people are not locked up in chains hidden away from society. So before people knock the development of antipsychotics as a kind of superficial answer, really, really take a close look at how far we have come from a time when there was an incredible split in society and tremendously more stigma. But there are also opportunities. And as Mate pointed out, just because medication changes the neurophysiology of the brain while you're on it, doesn't mean that that's what's causing your depression and your anxiety. In the same way as he pointed out that if you go out and have a glass of wine and it makes you feel more social, it doesn't mean that alcohol is responsible for you being antisocial, that the lack of having it is the problem. It's much deeper than that. And what I actually think is very helpful is the compassion necessary to hold while we examine the edges of what shuts us down, of what makes us afraid, of the dragons that come to us when we feel exposed. And I love, in the film, when Mate does his thing, and these are questions that I ask people all the time, when did you learn that you had to fill in the blank? When did you learn that you had to be tough? 
When did you learn that you had to do things on your own? When did you learn that you had to be suspicious of other people? Where did you learn that if someone finds out about you, you will get hurt? I think these are questions that we always have to ask ourselves and think when we're meeting other people. There must be a reason that this person had to protect themselves. And it is so hard with those that we love. I'm often not great at it as a husband. I'm certainly not great at it with myself. I think sometimes as a clinician, the distance and the space that's afforded to that kind of process allows a certain oxygen into the conversation or the reflective capacity. But trauma is tough. The pain that is present. Charlene Jones said this in my second podcast. Trauma is not in the past. It's taking place in the present. And if that's the case, it must be very hard. It must be hard to keep our wits about us. It must bring back deep feelings of loneliness and fear. And so no wonder we can't think when we're hurt or somebody hurts us or brings something back. It's pre-verbal. Our body remembers, but our brain can't formulate sufficient language in the moment to be social around it because that old memory of having to protect is just stronger. Happened to me yesterday in a conversation with my wife. I shared something important to me. She gave me some critical feedback and I remember my body. It was like, nope, I don't want to hear that. I'm too exposed. And here we are. <laughs> Adults feeling like children again. <laughs> That's a tough feeling. But I guess if we can learn slowly but surely to turn on ourselves less, to turn on others less, when we get scared by the ways that others, especially those that are close to us, protect themselves, if we can just hold that space open, maybe that opens the door to a kind of flexibility that we need to survive. And, and not just survive, but survive from a place of increasing awareness, openness, and love. I'll end today by bringing your attention to an interesting book and film that recently came out called Derrière les Frontières, Behind the Frontiers, about a psychiatrist who's working in the Palestinian territories. And this is not a political statement. There is enough suffering to go around everywhere. And I'd like to avoid oversimplifying conflicts and situations, but certainly what she chronicles and what she expresses is very difficult to read and listen to and understand, but essentially what she is talking about is a critique she has of views of the patients that she deals with having post-traumatic stress disorder. And she says, no, these people don't have post-traumatic stress disorder. Where's the post? 
These people are living in duress every day. They're not out of any situation. These aren't memories of pain. This is bearing unpredictability for one's own safety, for one's children's safety, whether buildings will stand the next day. This is an ongoing situation, very difficult. She says, actually what she looks for when she's working with patients, what she looks for are two criteria. One, are they still capable of empathy? And two, are they still capable of self-reflection? Are those two qualities present? Can they be self-reflective and can they have empathy? And of course, we always move in and out of those capacities. But she must be looking to see that the person is actually able to come back to that in some reasonable way. And I thought that was very powerful. I don't want to diminish or minimize the kinds of suffering that she encounters, probably her herself as a professional trying to work in that environment. But that made sense to me. I think that is something that we can aspire to within ourselves as a kind of basic test of where we are with our relationship to our own pain and that of others. Can we be empathetic and can we be self-reflective? For me, that harkens back to the adage of how much better it is to teach somebody to fish rather than just giving them a fish. If you teach them the fish, they can eat for the rest of their lives. And I think that if we can return within ourselves to a place of empathy and self-reflection, that we can eat for the rest of our lives. Even if on occasion we are knocked off our feet and we lose our way, or pain comes back into our bodies and catches us off guard, or someone hurts us, and we are lost again, can we try to come back to a place of empathy and self-reflection, to do whatever it takes to connect the dots, understand why the rug was pulled out from underneath us, and to try our best to make sense of how we got here. I think if each of us can do that, we'll have better friendships, better marriages, and we probably won't hurt each other as much. Thank you for listening. What a lovely time I had slowing down and collecting my thoughts about my recent interview with Mate and sharing with you some of my observations about how to sit with our pain and remain emotionally and psychologically flexible. It's clear to me that we need to accept the fluctuations of our emotional lives as normal and not go chasing after windmills for the ultimate solution to our suffering. As I said earlier, I hope this conversation today reached you on some level, softened your pain in some way. I look forward to being with you next week when I speak to the great Deborah Brown. Until then, I remain faithfully yours.